come then to the preaching of God's Word in the book of Ezra, and we give attention to chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. As indicated when we introduce this series, these first few verses are the same as the last few verses of Second Chronicles, which shows something of a bridge between these books, the history that comes to an end with the destruction of Jerusalem is that which leads into the, uh, re- the bringing again of God's people unto Jerusalem. So here then the word of God, Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him an house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel, for he is the God, which is in Jerusalem. And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts, beside the freewill offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem." These four verses giving us what we'll consider this evening. We come, as is titled, to consider the call to reformation. And it's important for us to consider just how severely God's cause had suffered, not only in the destruction and desolation of Jerusalem, not only for the 70 years of captivity, but for the generations preceding these things, as God's worship had been encroached on by uh, inventions of men and the addition of heathen practices, as God's prophets had been neglected, set aside, persecuted, and even put to death, and when attainments, for instance, under Josiah were granted, so quickly were they undone by following generations. The cause of God in Jerusalem had suffered much, much shame. And what's worse is that the shame that was suffered was inflicted by none other than the people of God. Now, certainly not the destruction of Jerusalem, but the violation of God's standards of worship, the corruption of divine doctrine, and which proved to be that which brought to pass what God had forewarned, even the destruction of Jerusalem, was found to be by the sin of God's people. It was, as it were, a grand demonstration of God saying, I'm wiping this off so that I can reform it again. And so as he said in Isaiah and Jeremiah and others, there would be a scourge that would be brought and he would bring his people away from Jerusalem, but he gave promise multiple times that that would not be the end but he would call his people again that he would cause his kingdom to be reestablished 
and to be advanced. So remember the context. God's people have now been cast out for roughly 70 years. Now there's been significant international affairs taking place. Nebuchadnezzar was the one, of course, who destroyed Jerusalem. But in 70 years' time, the kingdom of Babylon had been conquered by Cyrus the Persian. And so this is not his first year as king altogether, but it's the first year that Cyrus, king of Persia, stands as the inclusive king of Babylon as well. Jerusalem remains destroyed. Its gates have been torn down and burned with fire. Its temple has been desecrated. Its valuable and ceremonial uh, instruments have been taken away. And the God, God's people had been under extraordinary discipline for their continued hardness of heart and rebellion. And surprisingly, Ezra, as likewise in Second Chronicles, the first name mentioned in this book is not that of some glorious prophet, priest, or Israelitish king, but it is Cyrus, king of Persia. And though this be one of the first places his name is met with in the sequence of biblical books, it's not the first place it's met with in the history of God's Bible. Because, of course, Iris is prophesied of generations before in the prophet of Isaiah. And so many surmise that Daniel, who was a prophet likewise during that season, did disclose both Jeremiah's prophecy and Isaiah's prophecy, saying, look, the Lord has called even you to be that one who would lead this work of reformation. And so you'll notice in the text, Cyrus actually is there giving this proclamation. And it's there that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. That's important. Jeremiah, the prophet. Children, this is important for you and for me to remember. The prophecies are important as they disclose and they display the great purpose of God. There are at least three places in the prophecy of Jeremiah where such things are foretold. In Jeremiah chapter 25, 12-14, there is the testimony of the overthrow of Babylon. And in Jeremiah 29, verse 10, the 70 years exile and eventual return is there prophesied. And as we read in Isaiah 33, 7-13, not only the end of captivity, but the glad rejoicing of God and His working in that return ultimately to bring forth that Messiah, the branch of righteousness. In Isaiah's prophecy, Cyrus by name is prophesied such that biblical critics have leapt over themselves, twisted themselves, made every difficulty uh, in their minds to come to pass in denying the divine inspiration, saying it is utterly impossible that a man could prophesy by name that deliverer that should be raised up. And we would agree, it is absolutely impossible for you or for me, unaided by God, to so much as know the name of one who is to come, much less to prophesy by name what that man should do. But the problem with all unbelieving and higher critical biblical criticism is that they have undercut the very beginning in denying God's work 
through his word. We rather see in Isaiah 44 and 45, respectively, the clear imprint of divine inspiration, that God should give his prophet the very name of the one who should so bring forth this work. And that's who we find here in Cyrus. And notice Cyrus stands as he makes proclamation and he puts it in writing and sends it throughout his grand empire. And he says, Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven, hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So he identifies it. My calling is to ensure that the temple is rebuilt. And so then he goes further in his proclamation. Who is there among you of all this people? This is a way of referencing the Jews who are in this captive state and dispersed abroad. His God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God, which is in Jerusalem. In verse 4, then calls upon all those who are in his kingdom to lend their support to this great work, that whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts beside the freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. It ought to strike us with a significant degree of amazement that the Lord chose a pagan king, Cyrus, king of Persia, to be the very one that would initiate this grand return and glorious reformation of God's kingdom. And yet, at the same time, it ought not to amaze us because God had already foretold it, and likewise had God prophesied much more. But though we are impressed that Cyrus, king of Persia, is central in this proclamation, notice more significantly that it is attributed to Jehovah. Verse 1, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Verse 2, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and He, that is, Jehovah, God of heaven, hath charged me to build Him an house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Cyrus was significantly exalted above even other rulers. His great kingdom was expansive. And yet, he was brought to acknowledge one greater than himself, that is, the Lord God. And what we see in this opening scene through the proclamation is the Lord himself bringing forth his promised reform and beautifying of his church according to to His gracious and holy Word. Now, before we press on, it's helpful, as already indicated, to remember this notion of reformation. You don't see the word reformation in this passage. But what you see is the very beginnings of reformation. The ordinances had been corrupted. We need not go back and consider all the ways in which that took place. You can read the pre-exilic prophets and how they reproved God's people. You can see it in Jeremiah and Isaiah and others, even the histories of Second Chronicles and First Chronicles. 
and gives you a short, as it were, survey of the various abuses that were brought to pass in God's worship, in His doctrine, in the practice and living of God's people, and how God with great endurance and long-suffering did raise up prophets and send them with words of reproof. He raised up prophets and sent them again. And though there were seasons when certain times God's people did repent, yet the overarching trajectory of His people was in the descending into all manner of wicked rebellion, so that the kingdom which by God had been set upon a hill to shine its light to the nations had become darkened like the nations. Brethren, this should remind us that when you hear people saying and claiming and teaching and exhorting and persuading others to adopt this and to do that and to put that away because the world likes it, we should have our mind go back to the time before the exile, which is precisely what was going on as well. God's church was being corrupted by the infiltration of worldly reason. And they had turned back against the prophetic word of God's sent messengers. And it's amazing. It's nearly uncanny how fitting these things are. The church of that day before the exile, before the, the, the destruction of Jerusalem, would say to Jeremiah, to Isaiah, to shut their mouths and not speak these words, for they're contrary to what we want to hear. It's not lending us the help that we feel we need. This is what the church says in many places today. We don't want that kind of preaching. We don't want that kind of doctrine and that kind of worship because it's not helpful It's not giving us what we need. It's precisely what Paul forewarned Timothy. That in the last days there should be those having itching ears who would bring unto themselves false teachers who would lead them astray and so on. Well, this is the background of Reformation. God's doctrine becomes corrupted. His ordinances become corrupted. His ordinances can become corrupted in one of several ways, either by adding to them which lacks divine warrant, or by taking away what God has ordained. And when those things take place, whatever men say, whatever numbers seem to evidence, there the ordinances of God are being profaned. And that's what was taking place prior to Ezra's day, prior to the captivity. Well, God, as we could say, had said enough. The day of long suffering ended, and the horrors of the destruction of Jerusalem have come. But now the disciplined season is ended, and what is God going to do? It's interesting, isn't it? The thing he does is the thing he did in Moses' day. He has a house constructed for his name. Now, in Moses' day, it was the tabernacle in their days of journeying, but subsequent to that, it became the temple in the stated place of promise. And so, though it's a new building, it's a new building according to the old measure, the old standard. And so, it's restoring, it's reforming this central place of God's glorious praise of the instruction of His people, of the worship of His name. This is what Reformation is. It's bringing into alignment 
His doctrine among His people. It's bringing into alignment His worship among His people. His government among His people. All in accordance to His Word. And as noted earlier, this can be in grand ways, and it can be in small ways. It can be in grand ways as in Ezra, in Josiah's day, and subsequent as well. It can be in personal ways that our own activities are being reformed. And so whenever it is that God brings these things into the alignment of the instruction of His Word, there is reformation. Now, what we wish to consider are three things. Firstly, the foundation of reformation. Secondly, the servants of reformation. And lastly, the purpose of reformation. The foundation, servants, and purpose. Question to raise regarding the first, the foundation of reformation is, what is the foundation? Is it that a group of people say this is different than it used to be? Is it a group of people saying, oh, we discovered a hundred years earlier that this is the way it's supposed to have been done or was done? Well, notice even here that there's indication by Ezra as he recounts these things for us, records them, that it is the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. But notice, it's to the end that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. This is instructive for us. Reformation, worthy of the name, is always reformation according to God's word. There's only deformation when God's word is not the warrant. There's only a twisting out of the way when it's not in accordance to God's purpose as testified or God's measure as inscripturated for us in the Holy Bible. This is why, for instance, we can look at certain ones who say, oh, we need a reformation. I'm reformed. You're reformed. Everyone's reformed. And why are you reformed? Well, because we're going back to high church liturgy. And we sort of look aghast and say, are you kidding me? That's not reformation. That's returning to another deform in the church's history. It's not to be reformed. It's to be deformed to that which is contrary to God's Word. And when you see, for instance, people saying, well, we need a reformation, and so here's the way of reformation. We're going to institute all the holy days and have all the church calendar. We start to pull our hair out and say, you've misunderstood the teaching of Scripture. The teaching of Scripture is not saying go back to earlier days. It's saying go back to those days governed by God's Word. It's saying ultimately go back to the Scriptures. This is the foundation. This is what gave Cyrus his commission. This is what gave God's people their commission. This is the foundation for the movement back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple in accordance to the Scriptures that preceded. And the same is true in every era of the church. In our day, it's not some charismatic leader standing up saying, this is what I think would be good. And oh, you know, I was reading this medieval author who is very in touch with the spiritual, the mystical, and so on. And so what we need to do is we need to set up stations of the cross around our church. And we need to start marching the stations of the cross and praying along the way. Because this is getting us in touch with our spiritual heritage. Well, brethren, whatever it's getting us in touch with, 
It's not getting us in touch with biblical reformation. Biblical reformation always comes to the Word of Jehovah. It always comes back to the Word of God. Now, this gives us the guidance of it. Cyrus would have had no warrant, particularly as a pagan king, to say, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to rebuild Jerusalem. But it was by the mouth of Jeremiah, the word of the Lord had come. And so Cyrus saw, doubtlessly with the help of others, other Jews in his place, the warrant for such a work. Now, likewise with the foundation, it's his word, but the foundation, we could say, of encouragement is his purpose. It's instructive. Jeremiah is a prophet, and he prophesied of these days. He articulated, indeed, that this should come to pass. And a prophecy, of course, is a foretelling of God's purpose, which gives anticipation to God's people to seek these things. Now, this is significant in the redemptive historical time that we find ourselves at the temple having been destroyed, the public ordinances having been wiped away, as it were, that it should be restored, demanded divine warrant for that to come to pass. But what it also provided to God's believing people was the anticipation that it should come to pass. Now, we are none of those who would look to every single prophecy in the Scripture and pretend as if it has relevance to our day directly uh, in the near future or distant future. But there are prophecies in the Scripture which anticipate glorious days for the church. We don't mean easy days for the church. We don't mean days without persecution for the church. But we can give one example that could be multiplied. If you look, for instance, at that of the book of Romans in chapter 11, it's a shame how it is that the error among our brethren who are dispensationals have turned the physical descendants of the Jews and the natural land of Israel to be the fulfillment of all prophecies that remain. Because what has happened is a reaction among other evangelicals then to discount the turning of Israel again unto the Messiah. But notice in Romans chapter 11 that here in verse 1, Paul is not speaking of the elect. Sometimes he does. Sometimes he speaks of Israel as code for all the elect. But notice in verse 1, "...hath God cast away His people? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham." and of the tribe of Benjamin. And so he's speaking of the real identification of the literal descendants of Abraham. Now, we're ready to say, this is impossible. How could God sort all of these things out? All of what's taken place from Paul's day to our day, all of that's taken place from the Holocaust and so on, how is it possible that we could even begin to expect that the Israelites, the Jews, according to the flesh, should have hope of being brought on again. Well, remember Ezra. How is it possible 
that they could have expected that a pagan king should come and be the one that should initiate the grand reformation of rebuilding the church, the temple, the reestablishing of the Lord's pure worship. How could they expect it? Because God had promised it. He had prophesied it. And this was to build up the encouragement of them. Notice in verse 12 of Romans 11, Now if the fall of them, speaking of the Jews, be the riches of the world, speaking of the Gentiles, and the diminishing of them, the Jews, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness... For if I, for I speak to you Gentiles, and as much as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? You see how Paul's anticipating this. There's going to come a day, Paul is setting before us, when the Jews who have the veil over their eyes at the reading of God's Word shall have the veil lifted from their eyes to see that the Messiah is come. And they shall embrace this. If you think the Protestant Reformation was a glorious work, imagine what it will be when the Jews return and embrace the Messiah. And brethren, a majority of evangelicals today have misunderstood this because they either say, well, this is what this all means. And we could go on through Romans 11. It's beyond us for the present time. But we notice, of course, that there is this great encouragement that testifies throughout that God shall bring them in. He who has cast them off shall bring them back in, grafting them in. And as is said In verse 25, brethren, that ye should not be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Note that word, until. It has an end. There will be a time when the blindness is lifted off. Now think of this, brethren. That has not been fulfilled yet. That's not come to pass yet. The blindness remains over the majority of the Jews. But there's a day prophesied, a glorious day, when the blindness will be removed and Jews will see and witness and embrace the Messiah. This isn't dispensational nonsense. First and foremost, it's biblical. Second off, it's the Reformed heritage. It's inscribed in our larger catechism that as we pray for, as Christ has taught us, Thy kingdom to come. Among other things, we're told that we pray for the fullness of the Gentiles to be brought in and for the Jews to return and embrace the Messiah. Why do we mention this? Because when this is unknown to us, we lose the anticipation of it. But when it is known to us by the warrant of God's Word, we begin to find encouragement to pray, to seek for it, to yearn for it, to plead for it. And even as God did stir the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord might by the mouth of Jeremiah be fulfilled, so would He stir the heart of His people 
to seek not only that, but many other things that God holds forth to His people by His Word. But notice this. The foundation of all reformation, of all advance of God's kingdom, is always and ever in accordance to, motivated by, and governed by the Word of God. Secondly, the servants of reformation. This is instructive again, because the one who is led to initiate this is none less than Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, there's little that we can say regarding the state of Cyrus' soul. It would seem as records of history beyond the Scriptures indicate that Cyrus was never one who could be accounted as a true believer. It's not to say that he didn't become a believer, but it is to indicate that such proclamations may indeed not indicate that he was one who was a believer in the Lord God of heaven. For instance, we could be confused when we read, for instance, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord might be by the mouth of Jeremiah be fulfilled. That's not Cyrus's proclamation. That's Ezra's giving us the background. What's the proclamation? It's that the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and he commissions the same to be done. The point, however, is this. The civil government proves to be a servant to the reformation of God's church. This is something that is scripturally clear, and historically evidenced again and again and again. So, for instance, you see it here, Cyrus being a servant. He's not the only servant, as we'll see. But this is nothing less than what Isaiah prophesied. He stands in his capacity, not as a believer, but as a governor of the nations, and he gives his influence lends his influence, makes a decree, and opens the treasury to support the work of reformation. Well, we see this, for instance, in the book of Isaiah as well. In chapter 49, verse 22, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up mine hand to the Gentiles and set up my standard to the people, and they shall bring thy sons in their arms, and thy daughters shall be carried upon their shoulders, and kings shall be thy nursing fathers, and their queens thy nursing mothers. They shall bow down to thee with their face toward the earth, and lick up the dust of thy feet, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. God's Word testifying that kings as kings, queens as queens, will lend their support to the reforming cause of God's people. You see it when the Lord addresses the kings of the earth in Psalm 2. He doesn't say, listen kings, and your private capacity as a believer, make sure that you worship me. He says, kings, in your royal apparel, bow your knee before the King of Kings. This is something that is scandalous in our culture because we have the wicked development of Enlightenment philosophy which says there's to be a separation between church and state. That's not something that is biblical. No one can look to the Bible and say, there it is. 
What it is is the post-enlightenment influence that says men can have their separate existence and function independent of the claims of God over them. Ask yourself this question for a moment. Who in this world, who anywhere in this world, is given the liberty of God, by God, to do anything other than obey Him? Where is that given? What you won't find is any word of that in the Bible. Oh, you don't believe in me. Well, that's fine. Go ahead and rule according to your word. Oh, you don't think my word's important. That's okay. Make up your laws. So long as they don't harm other people, that's okay. You can commit idolatry. You can do this and violate the Sabbath day. Instead, what do we find? God visits pagan nations in the Old Testament. And He consumes them because they had cast off His Word. Think of this for a moment. It's black and white in the Bible. Why did God cast out the Canaanites? It was because their sin had reached its limit. They weren't in covenant with God. They weren't a covenanted nation. They weren't a people who were in covenant but not living according to the covenant. They were pagans. And God brought to pass His judgment upon them. And likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah, consumed in God's wrath. Why is it Jonah sent to Nineveh? He sent to Nineveh that the king of Nineveh and the city of Nineveh should repent. And so think of what happens. Evangelicals everywhere love the story, but they miss the connection. The king of Nineveh hears the, pro, the, the preaching of Jonah, and what does he do? He says, listen, proclaim a fast in all my kingdom. Call the people not to eat food, not to drink water, to dress themselves in sackcloth and ashes, if perchance God would relent and not bring this judgment to pass. He doesn't say, listen, you know, kingdom, do whatever you want to. There's this whole reality that we're not a covenanted nation and we're okay and we're at liberty and so on. But if anyone wants to join with me, that's fine. No, he takes, as it were, the royal seal and he says, if you're my subject, you must fast and seek Jehovah. Cast off everything else and seek the Lord. God comes to us in our capacities whatever our capacities, in our offices, whatever our offices, and says, you must acknowledge me. Think of this for a moment. A Christian man understands that he as a man is to live as a Christian man. And when he goes to work, he doesn't say, you know what, I'm going to check out my Christianity and I'm just going to live sort of civilly righteous. He's going to live as a Christian in his work. If he owns a business, he's not going to say, you know what, my business is independent. There's a separation. I'm just going to sort of let it slide uh, what God requires. right? But somehow, our nation and Western civilization at large has embraced this fallacy that says once a man takes political office, He no longer in his political office is responsible to acknowledge the true religion. That's not philosophical wisdom. That is degrading the truth of God's Word. So Psalm 2 comes and says what? 
kings of the earth. What does he call them to do? Kiss the sun. You're a king, as a king, kiss the sun. You're a ruler, as a ruler, kiss the sun. He doesn't say, take off your royal robes and in the privacy of your own secret worship, acknowledge me. As a king, come before, think of this title, the king of kings. He's not the king of individuals who happen to be kings. He's the ruler of the princes of the world. And any governor, any president, any Supreme Court justice, any legislator, any ruler whatsoever, greater or lesser, who does not acknowledge that, understand what's going on, Republican, Democrat, Independent, they are at war with the King of Kings. It doesn't matter what they say, you know, well, I go to church and whatever else, but, you know, we're not going to be much about speaking of Christ. That's to say, I'm going to take my Christian card and I'm going to throw it out the window when I'm in office. We don't do that in our marriages. We don't do that when we're out at recreation. Nor should a civil ruler do that who bears the name of Christ. They ought publicly to say, Yes, I'll serve the people, but the people aren't the law. God is the ruler. My call is to honor God. Brethren, think of this for a moment. The Protestant Reformation of the 16th century doesn't take place unless there are civil rulers protecting, helping, and advancing the cause. Luther doesn't survive a week without the protector who protected him. Calvin doesn't survive without Geneva providing protection to him. And you see the opposite. When a city turns to Rome, they persecute the reformers. And then when the government switches back, they protect the reformers. This is part of historical truth as biblical. But it's not just the civil government. They provide, as it were, the outward context Cyrus isn't building. He is the instrument that lends strength to the church doing its work. And so notice, the servant includes the civil government. Yes, much can be done without the civil government. But when there's great reformation taking place, it includes the civil government. But what does the proclamation say? In verse 3, notice, "...who is there among you of all his people?" It's His people who are the primary workers. And you can put this with verse 5. Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites. This is instructive. We'll talk about this, Lord willing, next week. But church officers are those who are to bear the work of reformation. That's what's meant by the chief of the fathers, the elders, and the priests, and the Levites, those who are charged with teaching the people of God. They are to lead the charge, as it were. The civil government says, go forward. They don't take upon themselves all of the ordinances. They're saying, my work is to protect, to advocate, to preserve, to promote, to help the work of reformation. But my hands are not authorized to touch the ordinances. You must do it. You're the church. Go forth and work. So church officers go about doing that. That's why we think in terms of John Calvin, Martin Luther, John Knox, 
and others, because these are ministers preaching the gospel. But it's not just church officers, though a heavy share falls upon their shoulders. Notice again in verse 3 and 4, Who is there among you of all this people? His God be with him, and so on. Verse 4, Whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver and so forth. And then see verse 6, And all they that were about them strengthened their hands with vessels of silver and so forth. It's the people as well, laboring, helping, strengthening. You can see it when Nehemiah shows up in the next book. Or uh, later on in the, in the Scriptures. Nehemiah comes, commissioned of God, and then the people have a mind to work, and they repair the walls. It's not just the church officers. It's the people of God at work together saying, we want the church reformed. We will give of our time, of our finances, of all that we have in order to see this advance. Understand this. There's no reformation without the people of God laboring sacrificially for it. It won't take place. But here's the encouragement. God, who stirred the heart of the King Cyrus, is likewise the one who stirs the hearts of His people, as we'll see in Ezra, as is likewise held forth in Nehemiah. So the servants include all men in their various capacities. The civil government, in its sphere, it doesn't transgress and say this is what you're going to preach and this is the doctrine you're going to prescribe and so on, but it clears the path and it says you need finances, I'll finance it. You need support and protection, I'll give it. That's a godly magistrate. That's a godly government. That's a reformed government. But it doesn't then say here's the doctrine you must believe and so on calls the church through its officers to labor diligently. But it's not just the officers. The people of God are laboring for the same. And you can see this in Josiah's time preceding this. You'll see it throughout this book of Ezra. You'll see it in history when Reformation comes at various times. These things join together. And that is, as it were, the display of God's glorious activating of His servants to the work of Reformation. Well, lastly, what is all of this for? This is important. Because often we can get excited about the thought of Reformation and we lose sight of the glorious purpose. What was Cyrus making this proclamation for? It was so that there would be a house built for God at Jerusalem. He says it in verse 2. Notice again in verse 3 that they would build the house of the Lord God of Israel, which is at Jerusalem. This tells us much. We can break it down briefly into several things. The purpose of Reformation is preeminently for the worship of God. It's for the purifying of the ordinances that God would be worshipped. What was the temple built for? Well, it was built for a lot of things. We can touch on some of those in a moment. But preeminently, it was for the making known of God and the worshiping of His name. And so there were the sacrifices administered. There were the uh, instruments of the Old Covenant played. There did the people gather. We sing of this in Psalm 122, that there are seats of judgment, there are thrones of judgment, there's the unity of the church there as well. But ultimately, all of it is gathered for the purpose of worshiping God. 
What we long for is not that, well, we can get our way. We long for God to be worshipped, to be worshipped according to His Word. What else would we want? What is it that we desire? To see big churches? Oh, we want big churches filled with many people. But we don't want it so that our bank accounts in the church are full and our pastors are well paid. We want it because that means, by God's blessing, that more people are worshiping God purely and truly. We mentioned this when we began the series. When John Calvin writes to the emperor, he says, you want to know the two things whereby God's knowledge is most fully made known and the two things that we earnestly seek reformation for? You want to know what they are? First foremost, the number one thing Calvin says is that God's ordinances be administered purely so that His name would be worshipped. That's what Reformation is about. Reformation is bringing doctrine together in accordance to His Word. Reformation is bringing the ordinances purely administered according to His Word. The church governed rightly according to His Word so that God would be worshipped. The focus is not upon men. It's not upon this governor or this minister or this member of the church. The focus of Reformation goes to God. This is the earnest desire. Why do we want the doctrine of God's Word to uh, advance in this world? It's not so that we can sit back 20, 30 years from now and say, you know, I was there at the beginning and it was pretty difficult and there were a few people and everything, but this is what it was all for. And, you know, we want our names on some tablet in the church saying, these are the first members of this congregation, and this is one of the first churches of this presbytery. It's none of that. We could live gladly with our names being lost to time if only God's name would be worshipped. That's our desire. We want Him praised. Why do we give? Not so we can check off something in our conscience and say, I've answered this. Why do we pray? Not so that we can say to people, if they ask us, have you been praying? Yes, I've prayed. Why do we read? Not so that we can be able to say, well, I read this and I read that and I've read these things. We're doing all of this, as it were, to amass a people to worship God. Yes, it's true. Nothing we do can do those things we ultimately want. But they are the means by which God works and gathers in people to worship Him. You give sacrificially, and when you're giving, there's a subtle temptation. Why am I doing this? Why am I praying? Why am I reading? Why am I coming to church? Why do I tell others about these things? Well, if you stop, as it were, at the earthly level it's easy then to say it's not worth it. But if you look higher and say, here's the purpose, to gather people to know, to worship the living God, then it's easy to write the check. Then it's easy to say, you know what, I'm coming to church. Then it's easy to say, you should come to church. Why don't you come in here? Why don't you read this? Would you meet with me for prayer and Bible study and so on? Why? Because we're fixed upon the glory of of God. And that is the grand motive for the work of Reformation. Secondly, the purpose includes communion 
with God. This isn't separate from, it's included within God's worship. Think of the very term that God uses, a house for God. And if you go back to Exodus, you'll see this idea as well with the tabernacle, that God should build a house, a tabernacle, a tent, that He should be in the midst of His people. It is the means of grace whereby God makes His presence known to His people. It's in the public worship of His people that He most fully discloses His love, His kindness, His grace, His forgiveness. Why do we pray? Have you thought of this? Why do we pray for mission works to advance? It's not so that we aren't embarrassed next time someone says, how many congregations are in your presbytery? Well, you know, we have four, but we've got a few mission works going on. Well, now we have 10, and now we have 20, and now we have 30. It's none of that. We aren't interested in saving face. We're interested in more people coming to know the true and living God. And we're convinced that His right doctrine, His pure worship, His uh, appropriate government as given by His Word are those means by which He most fully makes known Himself to the church. This is why we pray. Because we long for others to commune with God. This is why we're praying for the saints in Nuevo Laredo. Not so we can say, well, how many mission works do you have? Well, let me tell you where we have a mission work. It's in Nuevo Laredo. You don't know about it? Let me tell you all about it and so on. Because we long rather for the people there to come to fellowship with God. We pray for the same elsewhere. Finally, all of this, the house of God, to display His glory. Well, we must close. Brethren, if you look around, it would be easy to look and to begin despairing in our trying times. It's easy to. The more you understand about the zeal God has for His own worship, the more it is easy to become all in, in all manner of ways depressed at the present state. I don't know what it was like to have lived in the Babylonian captivity and to hear, I mean, think of it, Oh, well, now the Babylonian Empire is taken over by the Persian Empire. What good news is there? But then all of a sudden to hear a royal decree and proclamation from Cyrus saying, if you're a Jew, go back to Jerusalem and build the temple. Seventy years of suffering. Seventy years for some. We'll read of this later. When there are those who would build the foundation, and remember the previous temple. And for the 70 years that were in the interlude of that, they must have grieved and wept and sorrowed and said, oh, look how the cause of God suffers reproach. And we do the same. Look how the cause of God suffers reproach. You just need to turn on YouTube and search for Christian stuff and you'll see all the deplorable excuses that go forth for Christianity. And it's enough for us to sit down and say, what's the point? What hope is there? Here's the hope. Christ, the King, has said, the gates of hell shall not prevail. It's not just a little 
war cry to encourage, it's a guarantee. The gates of hell shall not prevail. We saw the testimony that the Jews will come again. That's not just to sort of say, hey, maybe it'll happen. It's the same as in the days of the captivity, if the Jew were to turn to Jeremiah and see 70 years. What do you think a believing Jew would have been doing when they got to 65 years and 67 and 68 and 69 years? Would they have said, well, you know, it's been 68 years of all of this heartache. We should just give up hope. If they were a Jew with faith, they would have been saying, here it comes. God's Word will not fail. Is that where you and I are? Do we have that same encouragement? Oh, look how dark it is. Yeah, look how dark it is. Look how corrupt it is. Yeah, look how corrupt it is. But then look again at the light of God's Word. The gates of hell, however strong, however uh, severe, will not prevail. Christ's commission to His disciples, go to the uttermost parts of the earth and make disciples of all nations. There's hope in God's Word. We're not to despair. We're not to think, well, maybe we've adopted a wrong method of trying to hold to the pure Word of God and the pure ordinances of God, and maybe the better method is to compromise and join with those who have done that already. That's not the method. The method is to be faithful in these days. The method is to anticipate that it's God who will arise and show mercy unto Zion. And it will happen, as we sing at times, when the saints take pleasure in the dust and the stones of Zion. When you see that taking place, you have every right to stand up and say, the time that has been appointed has come. Do not despair in these days, but rather labor knowing that those who sow their seed with tears shall bring back their sheaves rejoicing. And finally, brethren, pray. Pray that the Lord would bring to pass His promises. Pray that the Lord would raise up those who would be bold for the Lord in the civil government. And let's be clear what we don't mean. We don't mean pray for merely someone to stand up and take a stand for basic morality. We want that. We're grateful for the Supreme Court's decision. We give thanks for years of prayer that the Lord has heard and answered. But we pray for civil magistrates to rise up and say, Christ Jesus is King. Christ Jesus deserves our national acknowledgement. You say, that is utterly impossible. Well, you're right. Judging by men, it's impossible. But judging by God, it is indeed within all possibility. Just as He raised up Cyrus, let us pray He'll raise up others in our day. Let us pray He'll likewise raise up elders and ministers of our day. And likewise, the people of God in our day that His cause would advance to the glory and praise of His name. Stand with me for prayer.